Good morning, Orangewood. Some of you were about ready to clap when they finished that song. So let's go ahead and do that. Thank you. Thank you, worship team. That was so good. So good. We really need worship like we have here. We need worship that is reinforced and bold and rich because it, it shakes us out of our lethargy. It brings us into the presence of the living God of the universe. It reminds us of what Jesus Christ has done and prepares us to look into his holy word. So uh, we're ready to do that. But before we do that, let's bow our heads and our hearts in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to come into your presence today and to adore you, to give you praise and honor and glory. It's so easy for us to want to bring adoration to ourselves in this world. So thank you for this environment where we're forced to think about you, to, to remember who you are, to think about your, your might and your love and your mercy and your grace and your peace that only you have provided for us, the great salvation that is in Jesus. So we come today into your presence as your people. We're not good, but we're yours. We're deeply loved because of the work of Christ. And so as we come here now, we ask that you would meet us. But we, in a sense, already done it. But Father, we do it again. We confess our sins for none of us can come into the presence of the holy God of the universe on our own merit. And so we don't even think of that. We come in the merit of Christ. We come because of what he has accomplished for us. But thank you that your forgiveness is rich and full and complete. And for those of us who are here today worried about our sins, uh, sins of this morning, sins of yesterday, sins of tomorrow, Lord, we pray that you would give us rest and peace as we come before you. And in this season of Thanksgiving, we do thank you for all that we have for our families, for uh, the food that you give us, for the resources, for our lives. Father, even for the trials that humble us and bring us into your presence. And so we come before you and we ask that you would meet us. We need you even more than we know that we need you. And so this morning, as we look into your word, we ask that you would teach us the Holy Spirit, you would be the one to energize the word of God. We pray for the one who teaches that you'd forgive him his sins and use one who is finite to communicate your infinite truth. For our focus today is you and you only. And we pray today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is uh, so good to come again to be with you and to look into God's holy word today. We continue our, actually, we conclude our series in our series, Honest to God, Honest to God in the book of Psalm. Didn't you, didn't you love Mark's uh, sermon last week in Psalm 121? Wasn't that great? It was, I was, that was wonderful. And we've had, we've had wonderful teaching. By the way, his nickname is the shark. And I, I hope some of you call him the shark when you see him next time. Uh, I, I love nicknames. God has a particular nickname for Mark. I'm not sure it's the shark, but it's a good one. I like that. Uh, but today we conclude our series in Honest to God. The Psalms are, are, are God's way of helping us worship him. The Psalms give us the words uh, to say back to God, as well as to how to think about our life. The Psalms are so important for us. And uh, so we're going to finalize it today as we look together at Psalm 110. By the way, I hope you did have a good Thanksgiving time. Our family had a good time. What's not to like about Thanksgiving? 
an inordinate amount of food with time off and a, uh, a schedule that's not all that uh, busy. Uh, that's, isn't that great? Bad football games. It's good to have uh, those times. Followed by rivalry, rivalry weekend. How many of you watched football yesterday? Yeah. Oh. Some of you clapping. Oh, Dave's clapping because Ohio State finally won a game uh, by more than one point. It was a good thing. Um, I'm sorry, Dave. I love you. I just had to throw you under the bus. UCF fans are happy. Alabama, Florida, Georgia. LSU, Texas, 72-74. And some of you are saying, how does that happen? There were no defenses on the field uh, that day. First time in modern history that that happened. And a lot of you don't care. A lot of you watch football. How many of you don't care? Yeah, good. Look around. Now, let me explain this to you. You don't care, and, and the football fans don't understand that, but there's a good reason for that. Let me give you the cultural interpretation for that. Sports don't really matter. They don't. They don't. Do they? No, I've been around since the time of the Apostle Paul, and sports have too. They don't really matter. Uh, but they're a wonderful diversion, aren't they? Aren't they great? Because you see, the day after Thanksgiving, we wake up, we turn on the news, and what's wrong? Everything's wrong. The incivility on the news is still there. The fighting that's going on in, in Congress in the United States, the problems that we have, we look at that, we finally did get the count on the election. Um, some of us are happy about that. It's done. At least the election is over, for crying out loud. And the millions of signs are off the roadway. Uh, that's good. You know, I mean, we look at that. Some of us look at the world around us and we say, man, there's more disorder than there is order. There's more chaos than control. Uh, there's more pain than there is uh, ease. That's why sports is so loved by us, because they don't really matter. And it's a wonderful diversion. It's great. Because the world really is a broken place. And as we look at the, even in our neighborhoods, I kind of like it sometimes. I get off the roads, get off 1792, drive into my, uh, go up to 434, drive into my neighborhoods, nice and calm. The chaos isn't there. I was jogging the other morning though, and my neighbor stopped me and said, hey, do you own a, a Nissan? He doesn't know me. I don't really know him. I said, no. What's about, as he was pointing at his mailbox that had been completely obliterated the night before. And he goes, I just called the police. I don't expect this to happen in my neighborhood. I, and I, I turned to him, I said, hey, man, listen, you got to understand the way the world really is. This is nothing. What are you complaining about? This is nothing. You need to understand the world is broken. If you read your Bible and if you knew Jesus, you would know that he explained. No, I didn't say that. I, I, was, uh, I was just kind of saying, yeah, it's too bad. I'll pray for you, man. Be warm to be filled. See ya. And I took off and... Uh, but the world is that way. That's the way that I didn't say it, but I was thinking it. That's the way the world really is, isn't it? We're worried in politics about the deep state, about the divisive nature of our culture. I have a, I'm, uh, this week I'm speaking to my men's groups, uh, and my title is Christian Living in Divisive Times. It'll be interesting of what I'm going to say, actually, by Tuesday. <laughs> because they are divisive times. People are worried about a deep state. Is there a deep state? Answer, yes. And David talks about it in Psalm 110. The state, the government that's really in charge, the powers that really are. And as we look at this deep state, 
we'll understand why we don't have to fear. Why in these divisive times, we can live with freedom, power. And all that we sang this morning, wasn't that great stuff we sang this morning? Yeah, it set us free. Uh, and this will too. So let's look at Psalm 110 as we look at the deep state, uh, the true deep state, and the power that really exists. This is a Psalm of David, Psalm 110, and this is important part. These, these superscriptions are a part of Holy Scripture. So Psalm 110 starts out a Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of the youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is God's holy word. Thanks be to God. Let's unpack this a little bit because this psalm you need to know is the most quoted psalm in the entire New Testament. Psalm 110, the most quoted psalm in the entire New Testament. You also need to know that this is a messianic psalm. It's a messianic psalm in the sense that it talks about the coming Messiah or anointed one. It's a royal psalm. It means it's speaking about the king to come. And of course, that king is Jesus. And of course, as we think about this psalm as a messianic psalm, it's also a predictive psalm. It's predictive, it's prophetic, it tells the future. As a matter of fact, as we look at this psalm, we're going to see that it tells uh, the future uh, up to the time of Christ and even way beyond the time of Christ to the end of time to pull it all together to help us understand what's really going on around us. And so uh, this is an important messianic psalm. By the way, how many messianic psalms are there? I didn't think you knew. I had to look it up. Out of 150 psalms, there are 11. This might be an ordination question, Erickson, that you'll get one day so, uh, from somebody in the presbytery. Psalm 2, 18, 20, 21, 45, 72, 89, 101, 110, 132, 144. There'll be a test before you leave here today. This is so important to understand that as we look at the psalms in the Old Testament, in the book of Psalms, that that they speak of Jesus, just as the whole Bible speaks of Jesus, doesn't it? You can't go anywhere in the Bible without finding Jesus. I remember in the days before electricity in the 1970s, when um, uh, we had a special series of preachers at our church, Norman Geisler, some of you remember him, he's still around. I don't know how old he is, but he preached a sermon in our church entitled, What's the Bible All About? And his line was, what's the Bible all about? The Bible is all about Jesus. And then he went Genesis to Revelation. I thought, you're not really going to do this. He did, actually. And it was a great sermon. What's the Bible all about? It's all about Jesus. 
And this psalm is all about Jesus because really the Bible gives us the flow of human history in a powerful way. And many of you know this. Many of you understand that the Bible gives redemptive history starting with creation and then creation and then the fall, or we might call it the rebellion, creation, fall, promise, redemption, and then the ultimate consummation. The flow of history. In creation, God said, I made this. You are creatures. You're not chance organisms in the universe. I made you. I made this. Worship me. In the fall, in the, in the rebellion, I like how Nancy Guthrie puts that. In the rebellion, God says to us, see, you messed up what I made. Take responsibility. Own it. But in the promises... In the predictive parts of Scripture, and and Psalm 110 is one of those predictive parts of Scripture, in in the promises, God says, I am going to do something about what mankind has obliterated. I am going to renew it. I am going to go beyond. I'm going to take it where it was meant to go. And so so in the promise, uh, God says, in the predictive parts of Scripture, he says, here's hope. Don't despair. And then when Jesus comes, we find redemption. We come, we see the fulfillment of this predictive prophecy that hope, hope has come. Freedom is here, but it's not, it's not the end because the final consummation is coming. And, and again, understanding that Eden wasn't all there was to be. Eden was good, wasn't it? Everybody says, yeah, God looked at what he created and it was good. Was Eden good? Of course, Eden was good. Was Eden all it was meant to be? No, we had a whole universe. What I talk about in my series, uh, Dangerous Freedom, I ask the question, it's the heresy of the hypothetical, what if Adam and Eve had never sinned? What would they have done? Well, they would have been a part of bringing about the glory of God all through the earth and all through the universe and all through the planets. I wonder why there's so many planets out there. Are there aliens out there? I don't know. I don't really care. I just know that one day God's glory will spread throughout everything that is. And eventually we get to be a part of it in the great consummation after the second coming of Christ. And so it's a powerful, powerful psalm that reminds us that God has come. What does David talk about? First of all, he talks about the Lord and the King in verse one. He says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord says to my Lord. It's fascinating here that David uses uh, uh, two words for the name of God, two different words. He uses Yahweh and he uses Adonai. And when he says, uh, the Lord says to my Lord, uh, he, he says the word Yahweh, which is the unutterable name for God, according to so many Jews. They will not even utter the name God. It's so holy and sacred. But Yahweh says to Adonai, and David calls Adonai his Lord. Fascinating, isn't it? That David, as a sovereign king on the planet, recognizes that he has a superior. No, he has two superiors. Yahweh and Adonai. And he's recording this conversation. Yahweh says to Adonai, sit at my right hand until uh, I make your enemies your footstool. Cut to the chase. I said this was a messianic psalm, didn't I? Uh, this, is, this is what Jesus does in Mark chapter 12. He applies this directly 
to himself. Psalm 110, he takes it and he says, this is talking about me. Mark 12, verses 28 through 37, one of the scribes comes up and hears Jesus disputing with the Pharisees. And he's kind of sitting back watching Jesus going back and forth with the, with the Pharisees. And so he says, Jesus, Jesus, tell me, which is the number one command in all of scripture? By the way, that's a, that's a big question, isn't it? How do you prioritize God's word? Is it all of what God says important? And we all say, yeah, how do you prioritize it? Jesus doesn't miss a beat. He goes back to Deuteronomy chapter six and the Shema Yisrael, and he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your might, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And, and this, this scribe looks at Jesus and says, well done. And because he said that, everybody else that was in the debate kind of clammed up. Nobody had anything else to say. So Jesus kind of walks away, right? No. He, uh, he's teaching in the temple and he brings up Psalm 110. He says, um, David himself in the Holy Spirit said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Then Jesus says this, he says, David calls himself, uh, David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Don't you love Jesus? I love how he's messing with these guys' minds. He brings up this Psalm that everybody knew and says, how does this play out? What is Jesus doing? He is relentlessly drawing people to himself. You say, that's arrogant. Not if your God come in the flesh. Not if you are the way, the truth, and the life. Not if you are the answer. It's not arrogant. It's helpful. And so Jesus comes to them and he points to himself. Uh, he, he's pointing to the fact that he is important. And this raises such an, an element of confusion in their mind because Jews were primarily monotheistic, weren't they? And monotheism means what? Monotheism means there is one God. And so Jesus is, is, is really making them think deeply about the nature of God and the nature of who he is. I'll never forget the first time I was, uh, I don't know, I was debating somebody in junior college and I'd done a speech in, in, I don't know, in one of my classes on the resurrection and I was talking about the Trinity and this guy came up to me afterwards and said, you Christians always say you believe in the Trinity, but the word Trinity is not even in the Bible. I said, really? <laughs> um, well, and so I went away and studied it. By the way, the best thing you can do if you want to learn how to evangelize people is step out there and do it. And then when you fail and fall, you'll go learn and you will learn it and never forget it. And I learned this. I learned that in the Bible, uh, there are three persons who are true persons with divine names, divine attributes, and divine actions, and the Bible relentlessly worships all three. And yet the Bible universally speaks of one God, so that the early church had to come up with this idea of one God in three persons, and we call that the Trinity. And Jesus is pressing home to them who he really is because the big issue of all time, what's the Bible all about? The Bible is all about Jesus. 
in every way, shape, or form. The Lord says to my Lord, the Father says to to the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. But the Lord Jesus would not sit again at the right hand of God until after what? Until after redemption was accomplished. Because as he took on human flesh and entered space and time and history, he came to do something that we could not do for ourselves. And so Hebrews, powerful, jumping from the gospels to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter one says this long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our forefathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he's appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he, Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as he has inherited a more excellent name as they. It's interesting, isn't it, that Hebrews here calls Jesus a prophet. The one that we're talking about as the king who has come to achieve redemption and he sits down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is powerful. Jesus is the lion of Judah who came as a lamb. And then after doing the work of the lamb, he assumes his position again as the lion who rules and reigns to sit at the right hand of the throne of God is the position of what? Honor, majesty, power, access. This is a powerful statement about Jesus and why this predictive Psalm reminds us of that part of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our, say it with me. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and... Wait, wait, what? Sits, sitteth, if you're doing it properly by the uh, old King James, and sitteth at the right hand of, the God, of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to what? Judge the living and the dead. The Bible is all about Jesus. And he points ahead to where it was going because he is the hope. This Psalm forces us to think of Christianity not as a religion, but as what Jesus could do for us. Religion is what we do for God. Christianity is what God has done for us. Who but Jesus could fulfill the law perfectly for us? Who but Jesus could take my curse? Who but Jesus could give me righteousness that would make me acceptable in the sight of God? Who but Jesus could do that for all of us? Nobody but Jesus. And so this is so powerful. I like, I like what one of you, I don't know who it was after a service where I talked about the sovereignty of God said this, said, God moves all of the pieces all the time on time. 
You ever heard that before? Because God is in charge. He's the king of history. History is his story. God moves all of the pieces all of the time on time. I like that. It's kind of a cliche, but I like it. Because it shows us that God is in charge. God moves all of the pieces all of the time on time. And how many times have you thought, Lord, it's time, Lord. Show up and do what I want you to do. Uh, he is in charge. And, and, and this is powerful. I hear good news and I hear bad news all of the time. But this psalm tells us that God is in charge. History is moving in the proper direction. And that's why it says in verse 2, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Scepter is a symbol of rule. Rule in the midst of your enemies. That's what Jesus is doing right now. He rules in the midst of his enemies. And we're not his enemies, are we? We're his people. The sheep of his pasture. You are special to him. You are deeply loved by him. You know something? He even likes you. Isn't that amazing? Even if other people here don't like you. One thing I learned and gave up a long time ago is that at church, not everybody's going to like me. That's okay. It's okay. Because God loves me in Christ. He's proven it and he likes me. He puts up with me. And there's a lot of times when I don't feel like I, I should be loved. There's a lot. Do you ever feel that way? Like you don't feel lovely or worth being loved? You feel dirty? You ever feel that? You, you kind of look at God and say, I know what the Bible says, that you love me, but I don't feel like you ought to because I don't deserve it. <laughs> Lately, um, my son has been doing some work in his backyard, and so there's been just piles of dirt everywhere. Now, one time my wife came up, and my wife's name is Gugga to the grandkids, so Gaga comes up and there's a little Wyatt standing there. He's about this big and he is covered with dirt head to toe. Covered. And Gaga comes up to him and he goes, Gaga, hold me. And, uh, you know, there's a Mary Poppins movie coming out recent, uh, soon. And it, she looks at one of the little kids in the movies and, uh, in the movie and says, and covered with dirt and says, you got more dirt on you. You could grow a garden for crying out loud. And she could have said that to Wyatt. Gaga, hold me. You know what a preschool teacher once learned? She learned that it's easier to hug a dirty kid than a stiff kid. That the stiff kids are those that think they're angry and they're mean and they got their face set against everybody. And you want to try and hug those little things. You can, it's hard to hug a stiff kid, but you can hug a dirty kid anytime. So what did she do? She scooped up that little pile of dirt and hugged him. And what God does with us because of the gospel is, is he will just reach down when we feel dirty. Scoop us up. Because he can't get dirty from our dirt. Because Jesus has made us acceptable. And when I feel dirty before the God of the universe, he says, son, you don't understand. You can't displease me because Jesus has infinitely pleased me. You're mine. You're mine. And I'm in charge. 
Then I'm going to take care of you. Ah. Then this says something so powerful as it goes from there in verse 3. Because he hugs dirty people, he says, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of, of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of the youth will be yours. One of the reasons why we have uh, the gospel is preached here every week. You say, I heard that before. We preach it every week. Why? Because we forget. And when we walk out those doors or those doors over there or those over there and go out into the real world, we need to remember that we are clothed with the garments of Christ's righteousness alone and that we're his. And that's what motivates us. That's why David would say, your people will offer themselves freely. They're volunteers. And he's not talking about a football team from Tennessee. He says, your people will offer themselves freely. Why? Why? Because of grace. Grace is why we go out there. We are fighting a battle. Our weapons are different. Our weapons are prayer. Our weapons are service. Our weapons are justice. Our weapons are love. Our, our giving, as Mark talked about up here today, toward people that have way less than we. Jesus says, love your enemies. I struggle with that. Do you struggle with that? I always have struggled with that. I, I'm just starting to get this. That That... The only reason Jesus came is because he loves his enemies. And the only reason I can advance the kingdom is if I love my enemies. Because some of those people who don't believe like I do politically or socially or in any other way, they're my enemies. Well, sort of. They're wrong. Okay. But I view them as enemies, but Jesus doesn't. And the only... The only way I can offer myself to them is if I first embrace the love that God has given to me in Christ, the grace that God has given to me. Then I can move out and I can love my enemies. That's the only way to bring justice and love and service to them. I, I struggle with this. In the movie 12 Strong, which was, I've quoted before, so don't come up and tell me you've quoted that before. I have. It's the movie about America's first incursion in Afghanistan after 9-11. Uh, and in, in those 12 uh, special forces warriors that went out to fight the Taliban, just before they went out there, the colonel gave the captain in charge. He said, he said to him, he said, the most important thing a man can take into battle uh, is the reason why. And he gave him a piece of one of the towers in New York and he put it in his top pocket. And the only thing that can can send us out into the battle is if we remember the reason why. And that is that God didn't give a piece of himself. He gave all of himself for us. He loved his enemies and made them his family so that we could be used to love his enemies and bring them into the family because he's a prophet, but he's also the king, who's also a priest. Look real quick, verse four. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, he calls Jesus a king who rules uh, after his, his redemption, the work of redemption is accomplished. But now he calls Jesus a priest, fully carrying out the whole idea of the offices of Christ. What are the three offices of Christ? Prophet, priest, and king. 
And Jesus, as the priest along the order of Melchizedek, and you got to go back to the dusty pages of the Old Testament. Students, you can't understand the New Testament unless you understand the Old Testament. You got to read it. I know it's hard. You get to Leviticus and you go, whoa, I got to stop this. No, keep on going. Keep on going. You got to understand the old to understand the new. But the reality is back in, in, in Genesis 14, when Abraham went out to, to retrieve his nephew Lot, who had been taken into captivity by the war of the kings, he comes back. Abraham comes back victorious with his 318 men. And, and, he, and this guy comes walking out. His name is Melchizedek. He's king of Salem, which is king of Jerusalem. And uh, he's, a pro, he's a king, but he's also a priest. Interesting. And, and Hebrews applies this to Jesus. For every high priest chosen among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently. I love this. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the other people. And no one takes this honor for himself. So Christ did not exalt himself, he said, to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son. Today I begotten you, as he says in another place, you are a priest forever. According to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus, we don't need priests anymore. I, I loved being a pastor in New England for five years. I served there. And uh, one day my car uh, was in the shop and Joe, who was uh, a mechanic and he came to our church, I was in the shop sitting there and actually all my cars were down. All two of them were down. He said, yo, your fleet's down. I said, yeah. So he's working on one of them. I'm sitting there because I can't go anywhere. And so the guy comes walking in and starts cussing up. He was a friend of Joe's. He was cussing like crazy. And you know, up there in New England, when they have, where you know, Catholicism is rampant, priests have a lot of power. And uh, so this guy's cussing up a storm in front of me and all this, and I'm just sitting there kind of smiling, smirking a little bit. And, uh, and, and the guy says to Joe, he goes, hey, who's your friend? He goes, this is my pastor. And you just seen the look on the guy's face. It's like, I'm going to hell because I pre I, I've cussed in the presence of a priest. I didn't tell him I wasn't a priest. I like that power a little bit. <laughs> we don't need priests anymore. Well, we are priests, aren't we? Because of Jesus, who is the great high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, who's accomplished everything that we need for us and our salvation. When we feel powerless, when we feel hopeless, where do we go? Where do we run? Well, we could run to the mall and buy something. We could run to pills, we could run to alcohol, we could run to work, we could run to work out, we could run to all kinds of places. But we've got a sympathetic high priest. A sympathetic high priest. Who's also a king. Who's also the prophet. Who gives us the truth that we need to order our lives. It doesn't get any better than this. And then look how he ends the psalm in verse 5 through 7. He pulls it together. He says, all of this has been fulfilled up to this point. Now he looks ahead. Now here, here it gets really predictive. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his 
this is not real pretty right here. So I'm going to read it real fast again. Um, it shows the intensity and the fierceness of the battle to come. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. And then he will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. What does the warrior do when the battle is over? He's thirsty. He's exhausted. He reaches down. He drinks water. He refreshes. The victor is the one that can drink the cold water of triumph. That's what's coming. That's what happened. We've moved here from Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. We've moved from Psalms to Hebrews. Now we're in the book of Revelation. And David shows this movement of where it's all going, where history is going, that there really is a deep state, but it's God who's in charge. Isn't the Bible amazing? 66 books written over a span of 1,600 years, 60 generations, 40 different authors written on three different continents in three different languages. It's absolutely amazing. And And it's pulled together completely in the book of Revelation. Here it is. Then I saw heaven opened. Behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Handles Messiah. There you have it. David has led us to the fulfillment, in a sense, of history. Creation, fall, the rebellion. The redemption fulfilled in Christ. The rule of Christ now, who is also a compassionate high priest for you and for me. Who is a prophet who teaches us and leads us how to build our lives. But he's coming again. And it will all be put together. Listen, next week we begin a new series. Our Advent series called Break In. Where we see as we celebrate and talk about the coming of Jesus. We see the break in into history. Is God sovereign over all? Yes, of course. He always has been. Always is here. But we're going to look at it in detail. And and the preaching staff here at at Orangewood is going to all take a part in this. In Isaiah 9. Read that before you come next week. As as we we see how the, the break in took place. And what is he called? I'll kick it off with wonderful counselor. But then in the weeks to come, each one of our staff is going to talk about a key area as we look more deeply at Jesus. But Psalm 110, as you walk out of here today, I want you to know that this psalm is a great psalm. It's, when you, it's a psalm for when you've lost your way. It's a psalm for when your suffering or your trials or your difficulty seems so great that you lose perspective. 
and you go, what's happening? Psalm 110 reminds us God's in charge. He's a priest. He's a king. He's coming again. And if you take Jesus as your king, you're going to be on the safe side. You're going to be on the right side. This psalm is one to turn back to, to unlock the New Testament. It's one that reminds us that we're in a battle. Yes, you've been in a battle. We've been in a battle. Orangewood's been in a battle. Some of you have been in a battle with, with kids in, in, in surgery, uh, with, with, with things they're going through in life. Uh, isn't it great that Emily Pinata is doing well? God's been working. That's a wonderful thing. God's in charge. Some of you have been in incredible battles, and we're in a battle, but it's not over because someone really is in charge. So we can move ahead. December 2nd, we have lunch after church. You know, do you notice here at Orangewood how they emphasize, Brandy and others have emphasized free food a lot? Is this free? Is that lunch free? Yeah, it's free, I guess. We get to eat together as we think about Advent. And next week after that, our elders are going to have a meeting after church and we're going to look at the future. Business meeting, we talk about the future. Yeah, because Jesus is on the throne. He's in charge. It's his church. He's leading. Psalm 110 is one of these verses that remind us, these passages that remind us that God has broken in. He is breaking in. God moves all of the pieces, pieces all of the time on time. And so he is our hope. This is our story. This is our song. Praising our Savior. You take it to heart. So will I. Let's pray. Father, you know everyone here in this room today because you are in charge. Lord Jesus, you are here through your spirit and yet you sit at the right hand of the throne of God on high. You lean over and make intercession for us constantly. And so, so because we know we're in good hands, we come to you. And we pray that you would give us hope. We pray that you would give us the energizing power of your grace to go out of here today and live for you, not being dissuaded by the challenges of a broken world, but be energized to be your people. Help us to love those that we don't normally love. Help us to be generous to those that we don't want to be generous to. May your sovereign priestly kingship Lead us and draw us and give us hope as we pray in your holy name. Amen.